Our, um, our Sunday school class is um, devoted to going through our church's doctrinal statement, which is the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And we come now today to a new chapter. Having completed chapter 21 last week, we come now today to chapter 22, which deals with the subject of religious worship and the Sabbath day. And so God has things to say about how he is to be worshipped, and he has things to say about the day in which that worship is in particular to take place. So as is our custom, I have made an outline of our chapter, and uh, I'm going to be passing that out, and then we're going to take a survey through the chapter so that we can get kind of a bird's eye view of what uh, is in it and the ground that we'll be covering. And um, then uh, we'll go back Oops, in uh, the weeks to come and, and demonstrate and prove from the Bible the truth of the propositions that are, are contained there. Now, as you see from your outline, this chapter covers six major points. And in paragraph one... Uh, the authors of our confession deal with the subject of the regulative principle of worship. Now, that sounds like a big fancy phrase. The regulative principle simply means that God regulates worship. Okay? Um, the point being <clears throat> is that we are not free to offer to God just any old kind of worship that we might happen to think is suitable. And so <clears throat> the question arises, who regulates the kind of worship that should be offered to God? And there's two answers to that question. Some say that God alone should regulate the worship that is offered to him. After all, he's the one being worshiped. And other people say, well, no, we should be able to worship God as we see fit so that worship is meaningful to us. And the real question is, who is worship about? Is worship about God or is worship about us? And the authors of our confession answer that question very emphatically. And they say, and of course we believe the Bible teaches, that worship is about God. And so since worship is about God, God alone has the right to regulate or to declare or to determine what kind of worship is given to him. And this is doubly true, not only because God is the one receiving the worship, but also because of our sinfulness and fallenness we are not qualified to determine what would be pleasing to God. And so, uh, for example, we're celebrating Christmas. No doubt many of you have purchased gifts for people. Now, when you purchased that gift, who did you have in mind when you purchased it? Did you have the recipient in mind? Or did you have yourself in mind? Well, hopefully you had the recipient in mind. You thought to yourself, now, what would please him? What would please her? 
And then you thought about this person and their likes and their dislikes and the things they've expressed and said in the past and their interest and their attitudes and their activities. And based on what you thought they would want, based on the input you've gotten from them over the process of time, you selected a gift and gave it to them. Now, it might not be something that you would necessarily enjoy or even use or want. But it's something you knew they would like because in the past they've said something to that effect. And so, therefore, your gift purchasing was regulated by their desires. Well, the same principle happens with worship. We ask ourselves, has God said what he wants in worship? And then we look in his word and we see what he has said that he wants and what he has said that he does not want. And then our worship is regulated by his desires. Now, a lot of people go to church and they say, I go to this church or I go to that church because I really enjoy the worship. That's really the wrong way to think about worship. What you should say to yourself is, I go to this church or I go to that church because I believe that the worship that goes on there is the kind that God desires. It's the kind he has said is pleasing to him. And of course, the way we know what is pleasing to him and the place we find where he has said what he wants is in the Bible. And so this is what the regulative principle of worship is all about. And really, this whole chapter is about that principle. And that is discovering what God wants in terms of worship. So let's then notice, if you will, 1A on your outline. It says the regulative principle of worship, paragraph 1. The first thing we see is the duty to worship is revealed by nature. And secondly, the proper method of worship is revealed by Scripture. Now, look in your confession in paragraph 1. It says, The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doeth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. Now, that assertion, of course, is based on a passage of Scripture, which we'll be looking at in the, in the weeks to come. But what it's really saying is that every person, without exception, based on the natural creation that is around them, and based on the image of God that is created within them, knows in himself that there is a God, and this God needs to be worshipped. And then it goes on to say, but, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or in any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So they say all men everywhere intrinsically know they have a duty to worship God. 
And is this not true? You look throughout human history. You look across every single culture without exception. And what do you find? Religious activity, the worship of some kind of a deity. And so mankind, even though he's fallen and darkened by sin, recognizes there is a God and this God needs to be worshipped. Now, of course, without the light of scripture, people invent uh, the forms of worship that they guess or think or feel would be acceptable to God. But our confession says we're not in a position because of our fallenness and our darkened minds to be able to determine how to worship this God and how to approach this God. Scriptures alone tell us how this is to be accomplished and achieved. And so we're certainly not to worship God under any visible representations. The second commandment says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image um, or any likeness of anything that is in uh, the sky or in the land or in the sea, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor worship them. And so the use of physical representations of God is, is expressly uh, uh, excluded as being uh, a legitimate uh, method of worship. And of course, we see idolatry is rampant uh, in the human um, race uh, throughout history and across cultures. And so, um, clearly, man is not qualified to decide how God is to be worshipped. God himself says, here's how I want to be worshipped. And by the way, don't make any visible representations of me. Uh, you know, pictures, statues, whatever. I don't want to be worshipped in or through those things. And so, um, the, the point is, is the acceptable way of worshipping the true God is instituted by himself and limited by his own revealed will. We may not employ our imaginations about how to worship God. So we're shut up to the scriptures. So we go to the Bible, we open the Bible, and we say, God, how do you want to be worshipped? And then we look for the answers in the scripture itself. Now you recall that in the Old Testament, God was very explicit about how he wanted to be worshipped, right? And he talked about a priesthood and a tabernacle and altars and um, animal sacrifices and, and uh, feast days and fast days. And there was a very elaborate form of worship that was established in the scriptures. And he said to Moses, don't subtract from this. Don't add to this. Do exactly what I say. Don't do any more and don't do any less. And you remember when Nadab and Abihu tried to come in and offer God worship with their strange fire, which God had not commanded. God struck them dead. And he was conveying a message, look, I'm serious about my worship. Don't just slop anything out there to me. Worship me in the way I have prescribed, or I'm not only not going to receive that worship, it's going to bring judgment on you. So God has to be approached in the way God is prescribed. Now, under the New Covenant, there are also prescribed means and forms of worship. And we are not free to add to those. We're not free to subtract from those. And that's the reason why we run our church services the way we do. 
It wasn't that one day I sat down or a committee of people sat down and said, let's see how we can uh, organize this church service. We didn't do that. We looked in the Bible, and the Bible says God wants to be worshipped um, through prayer and through singing and through scripture reading and through preaching and through the celebration of the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism and through um, the offering. And um, that's it. And nothing more, nothing less. So we try to incorporate all the elements that God has prescribed under the new covenant. Uh, and we try not to incorporate any that he is not specifically authorized. So this is the first paragraph, and this is the substance and essence of what it communicates. Now, the second paragraph talks about the proper object of worship. That is, who is to receive this worship? Paragraph two says, religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures. And since the fall, that is, since the fall that is spoken of in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve fell when they ate in the garden, since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other, but Christ alone. So what God is saying is that worship is to be given to the Trinity alone, and worship is to be offered through the person of Jesus Christ, that is, through the mediation of Christ. We can't just waltz up to God anymore in our own persons and have interaction with him. We can now only approach God through Jesus Christ as our mediator because he alone makes our approach to God acceptable to God. And so it says in the Bible, there's one mediator between man and God, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. And that's the wonderful message of Christmas, is that we have been given a mediator, someone who can bring us to God, commend us to God, make us acceptable to God, so that God is willing to receive our person on the basis of the intercession and the merit of our, of, of our mediator, the Lord Jesus. So now we approach God through Jesus Christ. And without him, we cannot approach God. There is only judgment. And that's why Jesus is the Savior. That's why Jesus is the specific object of our faith. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him, that is, in the only begotten Son, Jesus, will not perish, but have everlasting life. So we don't worship statues, and we don't worship saints, and we don't worship pictures. Um, we worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit spiritually. You remember when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, he said to her, uh, they who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the Father seeks such to worship him. And so uh, our worship is a spiritual worship, and our worship is accomplished through the truth of God's word. Uh, it's not accomplished through um, uh, the mediation of saints. It's not accomplished through the mediation of Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's not accomplished through the mediation of any physical symbols. And, of course, a lot of what's in this chapter was a polemic against the perversions of worship that were common 
uh, in this day that were uh, exercised through uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And that brings us then to the third paragraph and the fourth. And the third and fourth paragraph deal with the subject of the place of prayer in worship. And of course, uh, they give this a great deal of prominence because prayer is a very central and important part of worship. And uh, paragraph three talks about the requirement to pray and the characteristics of prayer. And then paragraph four talks about the proper subject matter. So notice paragraph three. It says, prayer with thanksgiving, being one part of natural worship, is by God required of all men. So everyone is required to pray. But that it be acceptable, it is to be made in the name of the Son. Once again, through the mediation of Christ, by the help of the Spirit, according to the will of God, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and when with others in a known tongue. Now, the known tongue business was once again an address to the fact that uh, the Catholic priest offered his prayers in Latin, and no one understood Latin. And so, therefore, the prayers were of no value and use to the common man who spoke English or French or whatever language uh, was the language of the common man who sat in the pew. Um, Catholic services have been conducted in Latin for centuries, and even though the language died and uh, was not the language of the people, uh, I recall as a young boy being raised a Roman Catholic, going to Mass, and the whole thing was conducted in Latin. I didn't understand a word of it, but it sure was impressive, and it conveyed an aura of mystery and reverence, but it was of no benefit to my understanding. And so the point is, is that uh, the Bible makes it clear that foreign languages, even when they were given as a gift of the Spirit in the New Testament, were not to be used uh, in the worship of God uh, unless they were understood by, by the people. So um, this is, is one of the requirements. So uh, prayer um, is required, and it has to be offered through a mediator, and it has to be not for anything willy-nilly that we might so-called desire. You know, dear God, please give me a Rolls Royce. Um, it says prayers to be offered according to his will. So we're to pray for the kinds of things that God has directed us to pray for and to pray about in his word. And of course, he's given us a very broad permission of, of things to pray about. But prayer is not uh, for the purpose of getting our carnal desires indulged, prayers for the purpose of advancing the purposes of the kingdom of God in our lives and in the lives of others. And of course, that encompasses a huge number of things. But we need to realize that ultimately prayer is about advancing God's will. It's not about advancing our will. Then paragraph four talks about the proper subject matter. It says, prayers to be made for things lawful, that is, things the Bible says are legitimate for us to have, and for all sorts of men living, or that shall live hereafter, 
but not for the dead, nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. Now, we'll talk about the sin unto death. I don't want to go into it this morning. Um, That's an advertisement for you to come back, (laughs) find out what that is. But uh, once again, this is a a polemic against Roman Catholic prayers for the dead. Um, They believe that through prayers for people who have already died, that they can be gotten out of purgatory, another doctrine that is not found in the scriptures, and uh, thereby delivered from uh, temporal punishments through prayers for them after they have died. What the Bible makes clear to us is that once you've died, your situation is locked in. It can never be changed, um, all of our prayers notwithstanding. Um, And so there's no example in the Bible of anyone ever praying for anyone after they have died for the deliverance of their soul or for the improvement of their condition. All such prayers are forbidden because they are not commanded. And all such prayers, of course, are completely ineffectual. So this paragraph then prohibits prayers for the dead and for those who have committed the sin unto death. The fifth paragraph talks about the location of worship. Where is this worship supposed to take place? Well, notice it says God is to be worshipped everywhere. And secondly, God is especially to be worshipped in his church. Paragraph 5, the reading of the scriptures, preaching and hearing of the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, uh, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, um, is also... um, Pardon me, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper are all parts of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to Him with <clears throat> understanding. Um, I, I misread my paragraph here. We're on 4A, the substance of worship. I thought, what's wrong here? Did they switch these paragraphs while I was asleep? <laughs> We're under 4A, the substance of worship, which is paragraph 5. That's how I got confused. Okay, so we're talking about the substance of worship. Now we talked about prayer being a part of worship, and now we're going to talk about the rest of the parts of worship. Forgive me, I got uh, a paragraph ahead of myself as I looked at the outline. Okay, now here's the rest of what worship is supposed to consist of, paragraph 5. It's not only consists of prayer, paragraphs 3 and 4, but also paragraph 5. Worship is to consist of the reading of the scriptures, preaching and hearing of the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper are all parts of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Moreover, solemn humiliations with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. Now, what paragraph 5 talks about is it talks about the substance of worship. Part of the substance of worship, of course, is prayer. And then paragraph 5 talks about the remainder of the substance of worship, what worship is supposed to consist of. And it lists all the things, all the ordinary elements that worship is to consist of. It's to consist of the preaching of the word of God, the reading of scripture, 
the singing of hymns, the administration of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are the ordinary elements of worship. And then these ordinary elements of worship are to be offered in a particular way. That is, they're to be offered with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. That is, we don't come and offer worship to God in a wooden and formal and ritualistic fashion without the engagement of the heart. Okay? For example, um, one of the things that, that the Hindus do is they have uh, what's called a prayer wheel. And they take their prayers and they write them out on a piece of paper and then they clip them to this wheel. And there's pieces of paper all around this wheel. And then they have a little crank. And they sit there and they turn the crank. And as they turn the crank, the content of the prayer that's on the piece of paper is supposed to be being flung upward to God. And so the guy can sit here and he can just crank the wheel and all these prayers are being flung up to God, as it were. And it um, doesn't require any engagement of the mind whatsoever. Our worship isn't like that. Our worship is not something we just do with our mouths and with our bodies while our mind is a million miles away on something else. Our worship proceeds from the heart. And it comes with an attitude of reverence and godly fear. It's offered in a believing way. And it's offered with an attitude of submission and obedience to God. So the first part of the paragraph talks about the content of the worship. The second part of the paragraph talks about the attitude of worship. And you remember one of the things that Jesus said by way of indictment of the Pharisees in uh, Matthew chapter 15 uh, was that the, the Pharisees, he says, they worship me with their mouths. He said, but their hearts are far from me. And so it's imperative that our hearts be engaged when we worship God. And if our hearts are not engaged, and even though we're doing the right things, if they're not being done with the right attitude, then they become unacceptable. Just like if we have the right attitude, but we're doing the wrong things, that becomes unacceptable too. So you've got to do the right things, you've got to do them with the right attitude, and you've got to do them through the right person, Jesus, and then that worship becomes acceptable to God. Now, it's obvious that being the case, the vast majority of what is offered to God as worship in this world is actually an offense to him and a sin to those who are offering. And that brings us then to the point I started out with last time, 5A, the location of worship. Oh, the extraordinary elements. I didn't mention that. In the paragraph 5, it says, Moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. Now, there, are, there, there is ordinary worship that we offer to God every week. I mean, every week, right? When we gather together for worship, we offer to God, you know, Scripture reading and prayer and singing and the preaching of the Word and the offering, and uh, then, of course, on occasion, uh, the Lord's Supper once a month, and baptism whenever we have those who are 
uh, wanting to make a pro public profession of faith. And, and these are ordinary things that we do in the course of our normal church life. But on occasion, in extraordinary events, there may be a time and place for either solemn times of fasting and seeking the Lord corporately and publicly, um, or there may be times in which we have special appointed thanksgivings. And uh, these two are set forth and prescribed in the scriptures. So um, those are the extraordinary elements of worship. And that leads us into our fifth point, the location of worship. Where is this worship supposed to be offered at? Notice, if you will, paragraph six. Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or toward which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families, daily, and in secret each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God by his word or providence calls thereunto. So what's being said here as to the location of the worship is that, number one, it doesn't matter where you worship God. Now, this is in contrast, of course, to the old covenant where it mattered a great deal where you worshiped God. In the Old Covenant, you had to worship God at Jerusalem three times a year at least at the temple. And if you didn't go there and you didn't do that, you were in sin. So under the Old Covenant, there were holy places, in particular a holy place. Under the New Covenant, there is no holy place. It doesn't matter if you pray in Jerusalem. It doesn't matter if you pray in New York. It doesn't matter if you pray uh, in the McKenzie Wilderness area. It doesn't matter where you pray or where you worship. God is everywhere. God receives worship from every geographical location. It doesn't matter the context. You can pray and worship in private. You can do it in your families. Uh, you can do it out in the woods. But there is a special place of worship, and that is in the church, okay? And so the second part of paragraph six says, so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken. So the Bible says particularly, forsake not the assembly of yourselves together. And so when the church meets, we're to be there because that's the special appointed place of God's worship um, that is um, a worship that is to be uh, engaged in above and beyond uh, private or family worship. So um, while denying location matters uh, and denying that any particular context um, is forbidden, what is declared positively is that the local church really matters and that is the place where we especially need to focus and practice our worship. Now, our time is gone, so we must hurry through the final point 
and that is the appointed day of worship. And this is paragraphs 7 and 8. And the point of paragraphs 7 and 8 is simply this. Paragraph 7 talks about the institution of the day. Paragraph 8, the observance of the day. The point of the paragraph is this. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, is a commandment that is still binding. It is still in force. It is still a moral obligation. Now, the day has been changed from Saturday to Sunday, but the obligation to set aside one entire day out of seven for the worship of God is an eternal fixed moral principle which has never changed and will never change. Now, let's just read the paragraphs. It says in verse 7, As it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by his word, in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. And from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. Paragraph 8 tells us how it's to be observed. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in, and in the duties of necessity and mercy. So the point is, is if you're going to worship God, it takes time, right? I mean, that's obvious. The question is, how much time? And the question is, at what time? And the answer is, of course, we worship God all day, every day with the totality of our lives. Nobody denies that. But we've got to work, we've got to eat, we've got to sleep, we've got to do laundry, we've got to do shopping, we've got to do recreation with the kids, we've got a thousand things to do. And if we don't block out some time exclusively for worship, it isn't going to get done. Not in the way that God requires it to be done. And so therefore, God himself has said, here's the block of time. One day out of seven belongs to me. The other six days, those are yours to do your things. This day is the day for me, for you to do my things. And here's what I want you to do on this day. And that's what the fourth commandment is all about. And um, in spite of those who say that the law has passed away, we're no longer under the law, that is true with reference to the ceremonial law of animal sacrifices and priesthood and tabernacles. It is not true with reference to the Ten Commandments. All ten of them are moral laws and are still binding upon us. And while the uh, positive element of the particular day of worship has changed, the moral obligation to tithe one day out of seven to God, just like we tithe um, uh, ten cents out of every dollar to God, uh, is still binding upon us. So we tithe our money and we tithe our time. The tithe for our time is one-seventh of our time. 
the tithe for our finances is one-tenth of our finances. And so um, I know there's a lot of modern-day teaching that would deny both of those points. Um, the church historically has never denied those points but has affirmed them. And, of course, the scriptures still affirm them to this day. So the last two paragraphs deal with the appointed day of worship. Uh, it was instituted at creation, and uh, it is a creation ordinance that continues to be obligatory upon us. And, of course, the way in which it is to be observed is the whole day is to set aside our works and our thoughts and our activities and our things and to focus entirely on God's works and God's activities and God's things. So this, then, is our paragraph, uh, our chapter, pardon me, that we're going to be going through together on religious worship in the Sabbath day. The regulative principle of worship, who determines how worship is to be done, the proper object of worship, the Trinity through the mediation of Christ, uh, the place of prayer in worship, its requirement, its characteristics, its proper subject matter, the substance of worship, its ordinary elements, its characteristics and its extraordinary elements, the location of worship. God is to be worshipped everywhere, but God is especially to be worshipped in his church. And then, of course, the appointed day of worship, which is um, Sunday. So that's what we're going to be going through. We're going to be taking each of these statements and proving them from the Word of God. You can see there are scripture references at the bottom of each paragraph, which give you... Um, uh, a little idea of some of the passages that we'll be using to support uh, these assertions. And so these are not just the ideas of men. They're drawn directly out of scriptural passages and principles. And we hope to demonstrate that as we go through this chapter together. Well, let us pray and uh, ask God's blessing on our study today. Our Father, we recognize that one of the very most important things we can ever do is offer you worship. More important than our careers, more important than our families, more important than our own agenda is the worship of the eternal God. For that is the reason why we were created is to worship. And Father, I pray that we might learn how to do it in a way that is pleasing to you and that we might offer it to you in a way that brings a smile to your face and delight to your heart and blessing on our lives as we have a right relationship with our eternal God. Father, we pray that you might help us to understand how you want to be worshipped and then to offer worship in that fashion. Lord, bless our future studies. May you bring great illumination and understanding to our minds through the things that we learn from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.